Amen. So Luke chapter 16. Uh, this whole chapter is uh, full of stories and teachings of Jesus that are uh, either parables or are not parables. When Jesus talks about the steward and when He talks about the rich man and Lazarus, which is what we're going to look at today, scholars are on both sides of the fence. And depending on which one you consult, if you look at commentaries or, or listen to sermons or whatever, it's, it could go either way. Okay? It's, it's 50-50. And everybody, of course, is really sure because that's the way opinions work, right? We're really strong in our opinions. And, and so, you know, whatever. I, I don't think it's a, a make-or-break thing. However... It is. I bring this up because it's kind of interesting. When you look at this chapter, it comes right after. Uh, chapter 16 would come after 15. That makes sense. It comes after 15 where you have a bunch of parables, called parables, told like parables, explained like parables. And then you had these two stories. And Jesus switches gears in His language. He switches topics. And all of these do tie together. And in both of these, He doesn't say the kingdom of God is like, or it would be like, or and He spoke to them in this parable. It simply is, there was this guy. So, you know, that causes a lot of people to look at it and say, we may be talking about real stories, real folks, not just parables, not just uh, a story meant as an illustration. And that makes it, especially the one we're going to look at today, a little bit more interesting. Uh, it's, it's interesting enough that he would use a story, and probably that, probably that first one is a story about the steward. That's, that happened a million times. It wouldn't be hard for Jesus to say, and that's like this guy down the street who did this. And sadly, I don't think it would be too much unlike reality for this to be just like that guy down the street named Lazarus and a rich guy who ignored him. So that's what we're going to look at today. It's not at the end of the day. It's not going to matter whether you think that's a parable or whether you think that's a story. But it's an interesting thought for you to go home and chew on in your own time and study that and, and look and see. Sometimes it, it makes a difference in how seriously we take something. And if, uh, if Luke 16 is stories and not just parables, then we really are learning something about our future, aren't we? So we're going to start at uh, verse 10. And I've got this up there. We'll see how this works. I'm a little, at least up here, maybe I can get it past some of the heads. I'm not saying some of you over here on this side have thick heads, but some of you started sitting over there and the remote stopped working. So, you know, I don't know. I'm not saying that correlation is causation, but, and I'm not pointing to a particular row either. Let's see here. They were worried. There were two rows over here. They went, I think he's talking about us. I wasn't, but I am, but I'm not. So, the second slide, right here, right in front of you. I'm going to get back on, on point here. Jesus tells this story. One who is faithful, this is at the end of the steward's story, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in, the, in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? Again, this is tied in, but this whole chapter ties together. It's tied in with this story about this guy who was an unrighteous steward, who found out he was about to be canned, and so he did everything he could as fast as he could to ingratiate himself to people that might give him a job when it was all over. And Jesus looks at this, and this is the, the fly past it quickly version. Jesus looks at this and says, guys, do you realize that you are about to be canned? That's what he's saying to the Pharisees. You're about to be, realize that you are actually not part of the kingdom of God. And you've got a chance to make that right. Maybe you ought to re-examine the way you live. Maybe you should re-examine the way you're, you're using the influence that you have fought so much for and have used so badly to do good and to do right so that you, as we read in the call to worship, so that you lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. 
so that when you get there, the people who are greeting you are greeting you from the right gate. That's kind of what he's saying. That when you get to, to heaven, there'll be people who are glad that you're there. They'll receive you in. You don't want to get to the end and find out you've had your ladder up against the wrong wall and been very successful in all the wrong things. That's what we talked about last week. And so he says to them in, in this summary of that story and transition to the next, you know, the people who are faithful with just a little are generally faithful in much. I have to tell you, I have found this to be a helpful truth in life. You know, we, we tend, hum, human, humans, humanity, we tend in, in the main to trust before we distrust. And so even sometimes when we know that it's likely that someone may not be trustworthy, we still default to truth. We default to, well, I don't think they're really that bad. I don't really think they're up to something. I don't really... We will override some of our fears and override even some red flags that we see. That's why you see sometimes somebody who's arrested for something, like Bernie Madoff, total crook, several years ago, took thousands of people's retirement money and spent it on himself and hoarded it to himself and just complete scammer, right? And he's in prison for the rest of his life. But why did it work? It worked because... In person, he just seemed like a nice guy who was out to help them with some great investments. And he was taking them right and left. But he didn't get away with it just because he was a good liar. He got away with it because most of us default to truth. We assume that somebody is trustworthy. I find this a good filter to help not to become cynical because you don't, that does no good either. Cynicism is a cancer in the heart. But if you will kind of remember what Jesus says here, trust a little first and see how they do. Did you know that's how deacons are trained? Paul told Timothy, give them some small stuff first. See how they handle it. Give them a little tri trial period. And if they handle that well, then entrust them with some bigger responsibilities. It's just kind of common sense, but we don't, we don't always commonly have sense. Uh, and so he says, check and see. And it, there, it's a good warning. If someone is blowing it constantly with small things, if you can't get the right change back when you send them to the Coke machine, you do not make them your accountant, right? That just makes sense, doesn't it? If, if your mechanic can't change the spark plugs, you don't ask him to change the transmission. It just makes sense. And God makes sense. And so he says, if I can't trust you with the smaller stewardships of your life, like money, why would I entrust you with souls? Why would I entrust you with riches? Why would I entrust you with the kingdom of God? And his answer is, he won't. Because those who are unfaithful in small things, those who constantly tell you little lies, are telling you some big ones you haven't caught yet. That's what you have to know. And Jesus kind of gives us a little, little, little nugget of truth in here that applies to what he's talking about, but applies a whole lot more. Integrity, whether it's in leadership or anywhere else, anybody, is holistic. And here's what I mean by this, whether it's integrity, stewardship, or love, is holistic. No one part of our life is to be set aside separate from the character of Christ in our life. Let's say that again. No one part of our life is to be set apart as separate from the character of Christ in our life. Everything about us who we are, how we make our decisions, the priorities that we have in life, the principles that we teach our children and our grandchildren, all of those things are to be saturated in the truth of who Jesus is and how He calls us to live. And that's what He's trying to get these Pharisees to, say, to see. Later, He's going to tell some of the Pharisees in Jerusalem, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. 
You're so focused on making sure that everybody sees you as being religious and sees you as being God's men that you haven't taken any time whatsoever to actually clean out the heart and your heart is nasty and gross and you're, you're greedy and you're power hungry and you're selfish and you're self-righteous. And he says, that doesn't cut it in the kingdom of God. You're nothing but a whitewashed tomb. You pretend to have life on the outside, but you are nothing but death. And that's what he says to him, and he's, he's pretty much telling them the same thing here in a different way. Everything about us should, should reflect that we are God's stewards of our time, of our money, of our energy, of our, our, the, the heart that we have for life. And what will make life actually great should be set in the heart of Christ and saturated by the heart of Christ. And he goes on and he says this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I would think that that would get a bigger amen when Jesus says something that smart, wouldn't you? We don't like to amen this one, do we? I don't think we do. Why? You think we have maybe gotten caught in the same trap as the whole world around us where money is concerned. God is t- or Jesus is telling the Pharisees that they have. You notice where it starts uh, in verse, I think this is 14, or maybe I'm going, well, I'm not going to try to click it. What am I thinking? Uh, he, he says, when he start, first starts talking to them, that he's talking to them about Pharisees, verse 14, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Let me just go on to that one. They heard it and they said, hey, don't you be messing with my pocketbook. Do you think we've ever gotten caught up in the same thing? Would you consider it? We were joking about this after church last week. There's the old saying, you've gone from preaching to meddling. Some of you older ones know that saying. The, the way uh, one of the families in Bonham, when I was preaching there, I don't remember what the lesson was about, and I don't, so, which is probably good because she was saying, she said, I, I sometimes feel like, she didn't mean this in a creeper sort of a way. She said, I sometimes feel like you've been watching our family through the window all week because everything that we dealt with and dealt with badly, you then turned into a sermon that Sunday. I'm like, I have no idea. No idea. I told one of my friends, uh, he, he, was, he was a Baptist and I had made a joke about instrumental music, not thinking about... He, was, he visited all the time and we joked back and forth all the time. But I actually wasn't thinking about him or our differences that Sunday, I was just joking something funny about. I don't remember if it was my theory that kazoos might actually be a cappella, and I've shared that theory with you before. Though nobody's gone for it yet, we're yet to have. If our slides, if our remote just continues not to work, we could switch to an a cappella kazoo praise band. I guess. Do not start rumors. Don't do it. Don't tweet that. Don't tweet that. We'll get in trouble. We'll be uninvited from things. Uh, but it was probably something like that. And he was convinced that I had had joked about that that time, about him. There was another time I banged my ring and joked about it. And this is what I told him. I said, his, uh, so, you know, I actually wasn't thinking about you at all, but sometimes the Holy Spirit just guides me into a truth that somebody needed to hear that morning, and maybe that was you. <laughs> he, was, he, he thought it was funny, by the way, okay? We laughed about that for years. But, and, and in fact... It was kind of funny because then he knew, okay, this guy likes to joke. So then I started getting it back. That's fair, right? I think that's actually gospel. Do unto others as you do unto them. That's not the way that's worded, is it? Do unto others as you would do unto them. That's the way the world reads that thing, isn't it? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you is a far better rule. So anyway, 
we would joke about that. But there is, there is a truth that sometimes these things strike us and we don't like it and we don't amen it because it hits close to home. And I have a feeling that, that that's kind of this section of Scripture for all of us. I'm not picking on any, any one of you or you, not me, for all of us. This stuff can catch us so easily. It's easy for us to read because these Pharisees were wealthy, powerful men. To think that Jesus is only talking to wealthy, powerful men. And He's not. He's talking to everyone caught in the same bear trap. And that can be any of us. Some of the greediest people I know are poor. Some of the most generous people I know are poor. And the same can be said of the rich. Some of the greediest people I've known are rich. And some of the greediest, or the most generous pe- people I've known are rich. That's really not about the bank account, is it? That's really about the heart. And so as we look at this, we've got to be careful we don't exempt ourselves from what Jesus is saying by saying, well, I'm neither Pharisee nor rich nor powerful nor whatever. No, nah, the devil can use this trap with anybody, don't you know? And he does all the time. So he talks to these Pharisees and he tells them, listen, you, you are, are so in love with money, but you need to realize what God has given you, God gave you as a stewardship to do righteous things, to be generous to the poor, to give to the kingdom of God and to do all of the things that God wants you to do and, and to build relationships that lead to other people's salvation, not just your accumulation. And that's where they had gotten it wrong. And so he reminds them, you, you are people who pull a lot of strings. And that's, that's the way, and again, this, this is not just rich people. People who give money to a cause then expect to be treated how? People give money to a cause, they don't expect to be ignored, do they? A lot of them give for the purpose of, it's primary season, right? And they give to the purpose of, I'm going to give you this now, and what am I going to expect in return? Political contributions are slow motion bribes. You can copyright that. That's what they are. And so people always expect something. And you will even see that in the church. Uh, and you see it in Christian universities uh, they, where people will give money and they demand something. Yes, I will give you $25 million so that you can build a football st- I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, by the way, so don't go there. But you, so that you can give, a, build a football stadium or you can build a new building in my name, in my name. That's the way they want it, right? And so they have you put up things and they want statues and, and plaques and all of this kind of stuff. And you find out eventually, and, and every now and then you coincidentally find out, oh, isn't that something they just gave $25 million? Oh, isn't that something their grandson is the next quarterback? You think that's not connected? That's why I think it's hilarious. When I've said this before. I think it's hilarious when people say that they've quit the NFL and they're only watching college football because there's, it, there's just nothing but corrupt money in the NFL. Well, you're not watching college football if you think there's no money and corruption there. I think it may be worse. I think the NFL, I think they might be amateurs because they actually still pretend to be businessmen and the other guys are pretending they're not. Figure that one out. But we expect influence. And sometimes it makes for really weird decisions that universities or churches will make because people have, have given this money and made demands. Abraham Lincoln, the, the uh, Sunset School teacher, not the, the uh, president, used to say, if you give money and expect any string whatsoever, he said, cut that check up because you're not giving it to God in the first place. No money given to God that has strings was given to God. And the Lord would rather not have it than have your pride and arrogance try and control what happens in His kingdom. And yet you see it. You see it in 
universities, you see it in churches, you see it in nonprofits, you see it all the time. Our world is built around this kind of stuff. People expect something back, even when they have no right to do so. Generosity is not generosity if it is a price tag on a favor. But that was the Pharisaical system. They were caught up in that, just like so many people in our own society and culture are caught up in that. And so he reminds them, you don't get into the kingdom of God this way. He says, Jesus does, he says that you know there are people who will try to climb into the kingdom of God and they'll try to climb the fence. They don't want to come in the gate. Why don't they want to come in the gate? He says, because I'm the gate. To get in by me means you have to get in by me. You have to surrender your life. You have to give up control. You have to cut the strings and you have to actually yield to the Holy Spirit of God. And he says people are going to come, try to come in by any means except through the gate. And he says, you know what? They're nothing but thieves, liars, and robbers. And they're not really in the kingdom of God at all. And there are echoes of that teaching in this one. He says, the law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Everybody listen to John. They know that John is a prophet, but what's the problem with this? These men he's talking to were the ones who fought John tooth and nail, even though they knew he was a prophet of God. Why did he bring him up? Jesus brings him up to say, and you know that you ignored it. People are fighting to get into this kingdom. They're pressing in all around. Poor Zacchaeus, when we get to chapter 9, can hardly even see Jesus from the side of the road because he was vertically challenged and couldn't see and the crowds were pressing in. And what happens? He gets into the kingdom of God. What happened to the Pharisees who criticized him? Left outside. He says, you've been ignoring it and missing it. You're thinking you can pull strings. You're thinking that you can show up and say, but God, I did all these things in your name. And what has Jesus said? Matthew 25, but I don't know you. I don't know you. When did we see you sick? When did we see you hungry? He said, whenever you saw the least of these, you were seeing me and you did nothing. Depart from me. I do not know you. This is what he's saying here too to these Pharisees. It says, everyone forces his way in, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a divorced woman, or excuse me, a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And that's where we all go, wait, what? Weren't we talking about money? I think we were. I think that's the problem, actually. I think this is part of what he's bringing up. Verse 15, and remember he had just told them, I know your hearts. I know what really matters to you. I know what your priorities are. Verse 18, he says, and I know how you treat your wife. I know you put her out. I know that you're not giving her what she deserves. By law, they had to continue to support her. Were they? No, they often did not. They made excuses not to. You have not treated her as well as you've treated your wallet. That's what he's saying. That's why he brings it up. That's why he's, he's repeating a teaching that seems out of place. It's because he's talking to the men who were granting divorces among themselves that were wrong and they knew they were wrong, that were based in their selfishness, based in their pride, and based on their greed. And it's basically a way of Jesus saying to them, you know, you've put your wife through hell. You've made it seem like she's an adulterer. Uh, if you ever want to know more about this passage, by the way, we're not going to go into that, but if you want to know more about it and you've got questions, come talk to me. But he... He's talking to them about their covenant, that they have not kept covenant with their wife. 
It's not just about sex in this passage and that kind of adultery. It's about the unfaithfulness of breaking your promise that you said that you would take care of her all of your life and when it became inconvenient for your selfish heart, you gave her the boot. Something only men could do in their culture. That's why he's talking to the men about this. He says, I know how you treat your wife. I know that you care more about your money than you cared about your family. I see that. And it's wrong. So then he goes on. That, by the way, as it says up there, that's the second most common reason Americans divorce. Money. So maybe Jesus needs to say something to us again. Because there are reasons, Jesus says, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, there are times where God by His grace understands what's going on there and where there, there aren't options. That happens. But money isn't one of them. The number two reason in the United States not a reason. And that's sad when it comes to that. And uh, that's a whole other topic we could spend the morning on. But boy, we're not going to. So then he goes on to this story about the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, let's go ahead and read this. Starting in verse 19, we're going to read through uh, verse 24 first. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried, to the angels, carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Okay, we've got to stop and deal with this before we go further into the story. You've got a, what is way too familiar a story in real life. Okay? This may be a parable, it may be a story in real life, doesn't matter. We see this all the time. You have first a man who's very privileged, he's wealthy, he's, got, uh, he's done well for himself, and there's nothing wrong in and of that, that you are wealthy and have done well for yourself is not the problem. What do you do with it is what Jesus is getting after. What was this guy doing with it? He is eating big and, and just absolutely swanky, and it says he's dressing up every day in purple and fine linen. He makes a huge show of every evening meal. This is like Jewish Downton Abbey. Okay? That's what this is. And every night they're dressing up. I don't understand. I watch the show for the cars. My wife loves it. I like the cars. And then it's all good. Some really cool old cars, by the way. There's a Bentley. Just never. Anyway. So he pulls up in his Bentley and his purple and his fine linen. Bentley Camel pulled chariot and he gets out and full of himself goes and gets himself even fuller that's his life all the way there he knows he's going to have to step over this annoying guy hanging out in his doorstep and i can imagine how some of us might react if somebody started hanging out on our doorstep i mean how comfortable with that would you be honestly how comfortable with that would you be somebody you don't know all scraggly out there there's part of that that's not really the right detail. Scraggly and hanging out on your porch. And how, what would you do? I do truthfully believe there are many of you who would invite that person in. I do. Because if I didn't, could not, I wouldn't go to church here. So <laughs> some of you surely would do that. But there would also be some, and I'm not picking on you or me or whoever. There would be some who would be like, Man, I don't know who that is. You think we ought to call the cops? And that would be your first instinct. This guy, even worse. You know what he did? He just steps over it. Just steps over it. I was reading the other day, a preacher in New York City 
talking about how often he sees this, where people just walk over people. And I've seen it. I've seen it. One of the saddest cases I remember, and, and you know, this is what happens when you're in a big city. You see a lot of this, and you're not sure exactly what to do about it. Sometimes neither is that city. We were walking through, I may have told you about her before. We were walking through the scaffolding, nice new great big building that they were building. And we're walking under the, the scaffolding there so that things don't fall on you and you get a lawyer, right? And this lady, so strung out, mental health issues, but clearly strung out too, literally just bouncing from one pole of the scaffolding to the other, across people. And po- people are kind of walking through like Mission Impossible with the lasers, you know, trying to keep from getting bumped by her. Everything in people's power to avoid her. And nobody, you could tell some people felt compassion, but didn't know what to do. I was in that category. What do you do for this lady? When somebody is put literally on your doorstep, shouldn't we kind of know what to do? And this guy walks over him every single day so that he can go in and eat ribeye in New York Strip every single day while he plays dress up. It's kind of what the world does to a lot of people, isn't it? And it's easy for us to look at people in those circumstances and say, well, they're only there because of. And they, they're, they're broke because. And, and maybe some of those things are true. But compassion does more than just point out the truth, doesn't it? Compassion doesn't just sit there and go, it's not compassion to sit down next to somebody who's broke and say, hey, you know why you're broke? That's not help. To feed, to clothe, to be stewards of God's mercy to someone. That helps. And you may get an opportunity in the course of that to help them learn some things that help them get back on their feet, to give them skills that would help them to take care of this and not end up back there again. In other words, to address some of those truths that got them there in the first place. Most uh, ministries that deal constantly with this kind of stuff do that. Uh, Rust Street in San Angelo, Good Samaritan here in Brownwood, uh, where my sister works in Kansas City. Go Chiefs tonight, right? If y'all are a bunch of 49ers, we got a song. It's coming. It's coming. Okay. You can't gripe about how crazy San Francisco is all week long and then go root for the 49ers. Am I right? That, that's, that's like hypocritical. That's like coming to church on Sunday and doing nothing about it the rest of the week. Oh, that one was in there, wasn't it? So here's what we're going to do. Or what they do. It, 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 whether it's Good Samaritan, Rush Street, uh, City Union Mission, Impact over in Houston, uh, City Square in Dallas. All those ministries know that you do have to address those truths, but you address the truths in the context of love and care and feeding and clothing and housing people. And we're a part of all those kinds of things in, the, in this community. I, I think it's awesome that the Lord uses this congregation as much as He does. Uh, could there be a lot more? Absolutely. And one of the things that we have to remember is probably one of the things that the Pharisees needed to know too. And that's just because your country does it or just because your city does it or just because an organization does it doesn't mean you're doing it. And just because you put money in a plate doesn't mean you're part of actually uh, doing all the help that you could do for somebody day to day. Jesus wants us all in, fully surrendered to the work of the Lord. And He He shows us, otherwise you look just like this guy. You drive past the poor. You walk over the poor. You maybe talk about them. Maybe you sing about giving to them. uh, Pray about how they're going to be. But nothing ever flows from your pantry. No energy is ever poured from your heart 
into actually helping people out. And that was this rich man. And yet, how does he react when he finds out he's in Hades? It's kind of wild, isn't it? How does he react? It's hot down here. (laughs) Well, welcome. You know, that's kind of what you were warned about. It's hot down here. I'm getting thirsty. He's doing what? Same thing he did up on earth. I'm thirsty. I'm tired. I'm hot. Somebody get me something. And finally, he looks over and he sees Abraham. If you look over and you see Abraham and there's a chasm between you, you know you're in the bad place. Am I right? Abraham's supposed to be on the same side as you. And if he's not, you don't start barking orders, but he does. You know you are spoiled when you are in hell trying to tell Abraham, hey, get that guy to get me a glass of water. How would that go? You wonder wonder how Jesus told that part, don't you? I do. Because that's what the guy did. Why don't you send that Lazarus down with some water? Which tells you what? He knew who he was. He didn't just know who he was. He knew his name. And the first time he acknowledged his name was to bark an order. Is that horrible? Stepped over him while he was alive. Ignored him while he was alive. Treated him badly. Hated him. Lazarus was marginalized and ignored and hated by this man. While this man is pompous and wealthy and self-addicted and indifferent. And I'm convinced that indifference may be one of the cruelest forms of hate. Because the indifferent sing about loving you while they do nothing about you. That's different, isn't it? I would rather somebody say, I can't stand you. I think God would rather somebody say, I'm not going to feed the poor. At least you know where you stand. Then somebody talk about it and play about it, but then be completely untouched by compassion. Like this man, who was as religious as any of us, I'm sure. In the synagogue, like he was supposed to be on the day of worship, I'm sure. Because that's who Jesus told the story to. And still, even in Hades, he starts off thinking only about himself. So, verse 25. Let's go on to the next part here. Father Abraham, have mercy on us and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child. I wonder how he said that. You wonder how he said that? Child, remember. I I don't think so. I think he said it like my, my meemaw. My meemaw, I know how she would have said it. Who, child? Mm-mm, no. Remember, she was from Mississippi. Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. Has been, it has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. He says, you are not going to be able to pull strings out of this one, my friend. Not going to happen. He said, well, I beg you, Father. Send them to my Father's house, for I have five brothers so that they may warn them. Lest, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The only time it finally hits him is when he realizes he's not going to be able to buy his way out of this one. Nothing he has is going to be able to be used to get out of his decisions while he was alive. A life where Lazarus was put down, shut down, and set aside. And yet Jesus knew him by name, calls him by name, exalts him in heaven. Isn't that something? 
But Jesus told us that's what he was going to do, didn't he? He is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, and he will lift you up. There are people that it's been said about that will not experience... I don't know. I love the quote. How much you can base on it, I don't know. I kind of hope it is this way. That people who have experienced so much hell on earth will not again because they've already had their hell. I don't know. Lazarus seems like that kind of a guy, doesn't he? The Lord had mercy and compassion on him. But the rich man, the hardened man, the indifferent man, Jesus never named. I don't think that's an insignificant detail. We do not know his name. This man who lived by his name is anonymous. The one whose name would be on buildings is unknown. It's not an accident because God opposes the proud and He brings us down. He told the country of Edom who were so full of themselves just like this rich man, He said, you put all your faith in your military might, in your education, and in your money. I think I've met these people. (laughs) Have you met those people? They put all their faith in their military might, their education, and in their money. And He said to Edom, who will bring, he said, you say to yourselves, who will bring me down to the earth? And the Lord says, I will bring you down. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. I think you can put in there, only to the humble. That's what he calls us to. People who see those around us. People who see the stewardship that you've been given, the gift that you've been given, that will change the world if you'll use it. If You'll humble yourselves and surrender your life to the Lord. This quote by Brennan Manning from the Ragamuffin Gospel, great book, by the way, great author, uh, said, it is, only in, excuse me, it is only the reality of death that is powerful enough to quicken people out of the sluggishness of everyday life and into an active search for what life is really about. And the sad thing is that that's often true. Don't let it be your death because that's too late. Be awake. Jesus says to us, and, and Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians 15 from the Old Testament, but saying that this is, this is what it's being said to us in our resurrection that comes in Christ when we're baptized and in the resurrection to come. Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. If you're ready to put Christ on in baptism this morning or if you need prayers, would you come as we stand and as we sing?